we'll just take a break and confirm that one direction or the other. Uh, you'll remember the story we were in here where Jacob was having his unamicable uh, parting from Laban. And as a postscript to that, I, I guess I just have to say what goes around comes around. Uh, he had treated Esau pretty poorly and had cheated him. And now uh, he'd gone through 20 years of being cheated by Laban. Laban. So God does never promise us an easy course, does he? He tells us to look back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to our fathers, and to look to them for example. And we can look at some of the things they did and say, here's a good and positive example. We can look at some of the things they did and say, that's not the way to go. So we can learn both ways. Even Christ himself learned by the things that he suffered. So one of the things that we need to pick out of this story and not miss is that these people did not have easy lives. They did dedicate themselves to serving God at some point in their lives. Abraham did, and we saw the conversion of Jacob back here a chapter or two back. And uh, he devoted his life from that point forward to God. And yet they had difficulties in life, and they lived with some of their mistakes. And some of their mistakes came back to haunt them. So this story is not over even yet. We'll find that when he got away from Laban and had difficulty doing so, he immediately turned around and ran into Esau again. And even though that's a historical event that we're about to read about, we have to realize that uh, at the end times, Esau would overthrow Jacob, would have a hand in the destruction here at the end time. So what these people went through and the difficulties that they experienced are now coming upon us as the end time descendants of Jacob. And it is very clear that Esau will help overthrow us and take over as part of the leadership of the new world order that is about to be established by Satan. So, was Jacob any better than Esau as a person? Probably not. That's something else we need to understand. God uses whom he will. He, causes, he calls those whom... He will. He chooses them. You and I have relatives that were not called. Why were we called? Was I intrinsically any better than any of my cousins? No. Kids I grew up with? My aunts and my uncles? No. Were you? More so than any of your siblings or cousins or aunts or uncles or parents? I don't think any of us could say we were any better as human beings. And yet God chose to call some and not others. Fourth? Okay. Bible studies the fourth, according to the chart. 730. Uh, So, getting back on the, the subject here, God uses whom he will, and he does call the weak and the base, as we see in 1 Corinthians. So, it should not surprise us that he called us. 
These men had their problems, they had their weaknesses and difficulties, just like the rest of us. At one point there, Jacob got converted. He began, began to be transformed, to look at things differently, to react differently than he had earlier. I think we'll see that. Esau didn't. And there's the fundamental difference. They were brothers. They grew up together. They had a common background, common parentage. And yet one went God's way, and the other, out of bitterness, hate, deceit, frustration, decided to go the other way in rebellion against his parents, not just his brother, but against his parents as well, and deliberately married outside Israel, which was contrary to God's law, or would be eventually, but it was against the wishes of his parents. And he did it in a rebellious attitude. So it was not just the problem with Jacob. It was rebellion against everything in his family. And that's the way his rebellion showed, by marrying outside. So it isn't that we won't have problems and weaknesses, is it? What it boils down to is how do we react? We will have trials, troubles, and frustrations. All Christians will. It is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34:19. But God will deliver them out of them all. So all of us will have trials, troubles, temptations, and difficulties as these people did. How will we handle them? How will we react? The love of many will wax cold at the end. Some will turn to sin. Some will just begin to party and say, Christ delays his coming and begin to whip up on their brethren. And some will just go the way of the world, right back into it. We've already seen that. How will we react? That is the question. But where we wind up will be dependent upon where we go and what we do with the hand that is dealt to us. You can play a hand of cards a lot of different ways. Esau chose rebellion as his way of playing his hand. Jacob chose God's way. God called him and worked with him. So God has called us and he is working with us. Now it's up to us to make the right choices. And believe me, we do have choice. So let's pick it up then in chapter 32. Uh, he just left Laban here, had difficulty, and didn't know whether it was going to turn into bloodshed or not. It didn't. Uh, and Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. So Jacob had quite a little contact with God via dreams, via angels, via Christ himself. Uh, Christ did tell the, the disciples who became apostles that from the time he met with them, before Pentecost, he would not speak with them much thereafter. And he didn't very much. And he hasn't a great deal at the end time. He did spend three and a half years with Paul in the desert, teaching him after that. So he didn't come often, but he did come. And we know in Joel too that it says that at the end time, 
uh, after the blessings of the first month, there will come a time when he gives dreams and visions to young men and maidens and old men and so on and so forth. So right at the end, there's going to be quite a bit of contact between God and man. And some of it we know will come as visions and dreams and that type of thing, even as it did with Jacob. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, that is, two hosts or two camps. Now, it does not say here why the angels appeared. They don't come for no reason. I think as we read the context, we'll see that there was a great trial coming up and there was great danger coming up shortly hereafter. And maybe they gave him some instruction because he called the meeting two hosts or two camps. Now let's read on and see how that plays into the story. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak to my lord Esau. He's calling Esau his lord now. He's showing great respect to Esau. Now he had cheated him out of a birthright. He had cheated him out of a blessing. Uh, but now he's calling him lord. Why? Well, he had reasons to fear. He had engendered a great deal of hatred in Esau as a result of what he had done. And his mother was complicit with it too. Well, that's one reason that Esau had such an attitude toward his mother and ultimately toward his father who had given all the blessing to the wrong man. At least in Esau's mind it was the wrong man even though God intended it to be that way. Your servant Jacob says thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there till now, and I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in your sight. I'm coming, and I hope you're going to be friendly. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. He comes to meet you and four hundred men with him. So apparently word had gotten to Esau, and maybe before these men arrived, I don't know, but certainly uh, after he heard the word, he said, I'm going to go meet him, and he was bringing 400 men with him. Now that would have scared Jacob, I would think. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, scared, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands. And that's what the word Mahanaim means, two hosts, two camps, two bands. And said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So he figured, divide it into two groups, and maybe he'll, he doesn't know how many kids and how many wives and everything I've got, how many herds, maybe if he finds one, he kills them, the other one will escape. He won't know that they were there. Maybe the angels told him that, told him what was about to happen. And Jacob said, now here is his reaction. He was afraid, he was distressed. What did he do? He was a converted man at this point. He immediately turned to God. Jacob said, O God of my father, and God of my father Isaac, or father of Abraham and my father Isaac, the Eternal which said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will dwell 
well with you. He is not afraid here to remind God of the promise. You promised me. Now I'm facing great danger. He claimed the promise. We are to go boldly before the throne of God, tells us in Hebrews. Not to shrink back, but to come boldly, to claim the promises. Now we have read in the recent years a lot of promises to the end-time church, haven't we? We've seen them all the way through all the prophecies. We've seen them in the New Testament. We've seen them all through the Scriptures. We need to go boldly before God. We see distress. We see things that are troubling in the, in the news. We see an economy that is going downhill and sliding into oblivion very rapidly. And the American way of life is in the process of being changed into that of a third world country. Very rapidly now. Price of everything's going up. Availability will become a problem as well. And then attitudes will come between people who are fighting over how much food there is left. So there is a time of great distress ahead of us. And believe me, Esau is behind this. Ultimately, it's Satan the devil. But we read either last week or the week before, I guess, in Obadiah about how Esau would be involved in and laugh at the calamity of Jacob. And here we see the story between the individuals. And Esau was creating a great deal of distress and trouble. There are forces behind the scenes today who are crashing the economy not only of the United States but the world on purpose so that they can take advantage of the peasants that survive the wars that are about to break out and become the ruling elite over a much decimated population of the earth. And we are the primary target. Esau still hates Jacob. And the Edomites are behind and part of the banking powers who have control of the money and are in the process of crashing the system. And they will take over. They will break the yoke of Jacob off their neck. It is prophesied to happen that way. So, can we see why Jacob was greatly distressed and why the peoples of this nation are not only beginning to be distressed, but their distress is going to expand geometrically as this thing comes down upon us. It'll seem like one guy with 400 men coming after it. So he divided it up and he prayed to God and he said to God, You promised to bless me. You promised that if you would return to if I return to your country and to your kindred, I will dwell well with you. So he's told me to go away. Now he's told me to go back and that he would be taken care of. So he's claiming the promise. Then he shows his attitude, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth 
which you have showed to your servants. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mothers with the children. He knew he could be wiped out. And he knew that God had promised that through his seed would come many nations as the sand of the sea. Now we know that we are not worthy. And God says in Zephaniah 2 that he is going to save for himself a meek and humble people. And he says maybe if we're obedient at the beginning of Zephaniah 2 and fulfill the will of God, we will be protected from the financial crash that is decreed in Zephaniah 1. We are now in the midst of that crash. And God says, gather yourselves before the crash, and maybe I will protect you if you're humble and meek. So here, Jacob feared that Esau would be crashing down on him. It didn't work out that way, did it? That is, for a future time, and that future time is now. So, he said, I'm not worthy of the mercy and of all the truth which you showed your servant. I think we should focus for at least a moment on that. Has not God shown us great mercy in showing us in Scripture that we need to get away. Can't get away completely. We'd have to leave the world. We'd have to leave the nation. But he showed us a way to get away from the brunt of what is coming. To get away from the cities. Now that's what some survivalists are now recommending, and it's what people in increasing numbers are starting to do who don't understand God at all or understand the truth at all. But it's something you and I probably would not have done had we not seen in the Scriptures that we needed to do what we have done. Okay? Most of us would still be where we were when we learned this. We would not have left there, wherever it was. Look how hard it was to do anyway. Look how some have come up against it and have said, boy, I don't think I can do that, or I'm not ready to do that, or just before the bomb falls, I'll do that. See, they're not willing to look at the Scriptures and take them at face value and simply do what God says when they learn that it needs to be done. They will copper their bets, stay where they are, and try to escape at the last minute. I have a question. Will God be with them at that time? You see, we need to be here for the right reasons. We need to be here because God says go and do, and because God says build a temple, because God says there is a work that needs to be done. It isn't because I or you are more important than anyone else anywhere in the church of God. 
God needs a work done, a preparatory work for the benefit of others later. It isn't about my physical safety or yours. Where we sit today is not the place of safety, though some have accused us of feeling that way. It is not. This geographical piece of land we're sitting on is not it. I believe it is a preparatory place and that the place of safety, the literal one, is not far from here. In fact, it's very close. But there will still have to be obedience and faith to get from here to there at that time. But if you don't have the vision that you're not coming here just to save yourself, if you don't have the vision that you're coming here to do a work that will benefit others later, you're coming for the wrong reasons. Don't come here to save your hide. Don't come at the last minute to save your hide. It may not get saved. Understand and comprehend that there's a work to be done. And that's the reason we're here. There's not one of us here that is any better than anyone else in any other organization. We as an organization are not necessarily special above any other organization in the church of God. It is only by the mercies of God that we understand some truths that others do not and have been allowed the privilege and the opportunity of preparing the way for others. We are not the greatest. The greatest will come. John the Baptist was there to do a preparatory work not to save his hide. Okay? Did his hide get saved? Lost his head over the deal, didn't he? It wasn't to save his hide that he preached. It was to do a preparatory work for one who would come who was greater than he. And if there's any reason God called us out here ahead of time, it's not to save our hides. It's to do a preparatory work for whatever leadership God provides in the future and for Christ himself who will be coming soon. A people has to be prepared. And a place has to be prepared for those people. Doesn't it say in Revelation 12 that they will go to a place prepared for them? Now, Zechariah 2 tells us that villages have to be prepared near the place of safety, near Zion. and that people then will come there, and they will have safety, and God will protect. And at some point, he will allow the armies to come and attack that, those villages, which comprise Jerusalem, and that we will flee from there to a place of safety. We're here 
to prepare a place for God's people. What an incredible honor that is. And I don't believe any of us are any more worthy than anyone else. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. Why do we deserve in any way to have understood the truths about the end-time church and physical or spiritual Israel and how the prophecies apply in the same way they do to physical Israel? Why? Only because God has a job for us to do. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood that concept, didn't he? He said, God didn't call you into the church for personal salvation. God called you into the church to do a job, to do the work. And he did have a work to do, the building of the former temple. And we were a part of that, weren't we? It wasn't about personal salvation. Now, it included that, but it was primarily to get a job done. And I would say the same thing is true today. We're here to do a job. That's why we were called. And if we don't have that first and foremost in our mind, we need to adjust our thinking and understand why we're here. It isn't personal safety or personal salvation. It is to make a possible opportunity for others to be safe and saved. And in so doing, we will ourselves receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We need to have the attitude that Jacob had right here in this prayer. I see so much vanity and ego in the churches today, in the ministry of those churches. Come to us. We're the ones that have the answer. We have all that Herbert Armstrong had and we haven't done anything else. Or we've gone beyond Herbert Armstrong. Or whatever their particular pitch is, it is that they all need to be with us and with me because we are the most important. We cannot have that message. What are we to be? The servants. The servants. We're not to be the leading church. We're not here to be the leading evangelist or apostle. We're here to be the servants of the greater. And that's the attitude we should have about it. We're not the first of the first. Let's see, how did they put it? No. The very elect. There's a church named that. The church of the very elect. I have to laugh. It's so pitiful, it's almost funny. God says, I am going to save for myself a humble and meek people. We've got to get rid of our vanity, our egos, our self-importance, and our corporate importance, even though we're not incorporated. I mean our organizational importance, then maybe I should say. 
don't pat ourselves on the back. If there's any patting to be done, let God do it when the time comes. Meantime, let's serve, let's prepare, let's get ready and make a place for others to come. And let's prepare ourselves spiritually to be able to help them as well as physically help them when the time comes. God called us here for a reason. Let's not ever lose our focus on that and start thinking it's about personal salvation or personal safety. It's not what this is about at all. I'm not worthy of the mercy or the truth which you've showed to your servants. He said, I, I haven't done anything. I passed over Jordan walking on my stick, and now I'm suddenly separated into two different groups because of fear and danger. So he said, please deliver me. And then he reminded him of the promise that he had made in verse 12. So, let's go to verse 13. And he lodged there that same night, and took of that which came to his hand, a present for Esau, his brother, out of all the blessings that he had had as a result of his 20 years of working for Laban, he decided, not only did I send someone to tell him I'm coming, and hopefully, if he's angry, he'll get over his wrath, I'll also send a present along. So he took 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their babies, 40 kine, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 foals. That's a pretty nice gift. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. So he's going to have the goats, and then a space, and then camels, and then a space, and then sheep, and then a space, and then donkeys. Why? Well, mental psychological preparation. I'll send one gift, and he'll see that, and maybe he'll accept it, and then I'll send another gift. If he sent it all in one bunch, then Esau might well reject it. But he's, he's trying to condition the man's mind by sending a gift, then another gift, then another gift, then another gift. You think this guy was afraid? He was being very careful how he went about this. And he had reason to be afraid. And he commanded the foremost, verse 17, saying, When he saw my brother meet you and ask you, saying, Whose are you, and where do you go, and whose are these before you? Then you shall say, They be your servant, Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord, Esau. Your servant, my lord. <laughs> He's... He's doing a lot of conditioning. Also, he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak to Esau when you find him. And say you, moreover, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept of me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. So he sent them on ahead. I'm going to wait. Maybe these things will settle him down. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok, which means pouring forth. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So he sent... 
wife, the kids, animals on over at the brook, but I guess he wanted some time to think, perhaps more time to pray, to consider what was going to happen when he met with Esau. So he was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. So the angels came, perhaps told him to divide into two bands, and then, when he was alone that night, someone came and began to wrestle with him. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go, except you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Israel means a prince of God. For as a prince have you power with God and with men, and have prevailed. Now here is a very important insight into Jacob's character. He was wrestling with Christ himself. And Christ obviously would have far more strength and power, and yet he was holding him almost at a standstill, and it had to be a miraculous thing where Christ just reached down and touched his hip and put it out of joint. And that made him weaker. But even then, he was not going to turn loose of Christ. He was perseverant. He was maybe stubborn. He was very strong-willed. Now, we are told in the New Testament never to turn loose of Christ our Lord. Jacob is a forebear who wrestled directly with him and would not turn loose and said, I will have your blessing. Now, where are we in the scheme of things here at the end? We're at a time when the church has been blown apart spiritually, at a time when the nation and the world is in the process of being blown apart. It isn't, a com it isn't completely done yet, but it has started. A time when conditions around the world are going to get much, much, much worse. Is this a time to let go of our Savior? Many people will. The love of many will wax cold, Matthew 24. And many will betray even their own family to save their hide. Now, when I made a comment a little earlier about are we doing this to save our hide, I think that is magnified here. We're not here to save our hide. And many will. They will actually see their own children, their wives, their husbands, put to death, betraying them to save their own hide. Is this an important pressure point at the end? Matthew 24 says it is says we're not even to trust the wife of our bosom. Because you don't know, deep down, it doesn't say just the wife, I think it says that those in your, the one in your bosom could possibly be either way. I don't even remember exactly how the scripture reads. 
But you couldn't trust husband or wife. I'm not putting it on the women here. You can't trust anybody, ultimately, except Christ. We're coming to that soon. There are people in the church of God who will see others die to save their own physical life. They will have left Christ. They will have left his teachings if they take that route. That is not something Christ would do. What did he do? He suffered death himself for the sake of us, rather than sacrificing us to live himself. We have to have the attitude he had. If we are not willing to sacrifice our lives for our brethren, then we are not Christ-like. It will come down to that test for God's people. That the scriptures make very, very plain. Now, Jacob was not going to turn loose. Even with his thigh out of joint, he hung on. I will not let you go except you bless me. Changed his name. You're a prince. Power with God and with men and have prevailed. Maybe we've overlooked that point where it says and with men in the past because this was a story of a wrestling match between Christ and Jacob. Well, what does he mean he prevailed with men? He took hold of Esau's heel when he was born. And he hung on. He was not the firstborn son. Now, he did not use proper methods, but certainly that character trait was there from the very beginning. And he hung on to Esau until he wrested the birthright from him and until he got the blessing from him. And I'd say that he hung on pretty hard with Laban, too. He not only prevailed over Esau, but he prevailed over Laban. It took 20 years of hard work, didn't it? But he hung on. He was a man who was transformed. Now, remember back in chapter 25, verse 27, where it said he was basically a houseboy, a city boy, if you will? He liked to stay in the tent. He liked the comforts, while his brother Esau was an outdoorsy type who liked to hunt and be outdoors and so on. This man, Jacob, became a country boy. He made a transformation, not only spiritually, but he made a transformation physically. Notice chapter 31, verse 40, some of the things he said to Laban. He said, I've taken the loss of cattle, but in verse 40, a point is made. He says, Thus I was, in the day the drought consumed me, hot, thirsty, barely able to move because of drought and heat and lack of water. And the frost by night, he stayed with the cattle out in the field, didn't go to the tent, but stayed out there when it was freezing, when he'd wake up with frost on his blankets. 
and my sleep departed from my eyes. This way I've been twenty years in your house. Here's a man who hung on through thick and thin, through heat and cold, and he learned to leave the comforts of the tent and become an outdoorsman and a cattleman and a sheepman and a goatman and a camelman for that matter. Now we've come out of the cities, haven't we, for the most part, to become country people, to learn to produce our own food and to eat it, not have it brought to us by trucks. Because pretty soon the trucks are going to quit going to Walmart and they're going to quit going to Albertsons and Smiths and all these places they go. They're not going to go there anymore. They're not going to haul food there anymore. Now God has called upon us to be transformed, to have our own vine, to have our own fig tree, and to be able to produce that which we eat. And he's brought us out into a very inhosp inhospitable place to do that very thing. Now, I believe he's going to transform it, even physically, not just spiritually, and make it more possible for that to be done. But some of you city girls and boys are going to become country folks. Look to your father, Jacob, and realize a lot of changes have to occur. It doesn't do to say, I'm this way, that's the way I am, and that's the way I'm going to be. No, because of the situation with Laban, Jacob said, I'll be different than what I've been. I will be different. What did we say when we were baptized? I will not conform to this world. I will be transformed. I won't be like the world anymore. I'll be like God. That's the promise we made. So you've prevailed with God and with men. And he had prevailed over the principal men in his life. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray you, your name. And he said, Wherefore is it that you ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Who are you? Bless me. He knew he wasn't dealing with flesh and blood and a normal man. And he held on, and he got the blessing. And Jacob called the, place, the name of the place Peniel, or the face of God. I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now this is an unusual happening. Before, Moses at the burning bush, well that's later, but uh, other times when men were confronted by God or angels, they fell on their faces and were afraid, but it was talk. Here, Christ actually engaged him and pulled him down and wrestled with him. What was he doing that for? He was testing Jacob. He wanted to know what the man was really made of. Now, didn't he test Abraham with the sacrifice of his son Isaac? He wanted, and then later he said, Now I know, Abraham. And it was only after this wrestling here that he could have said the same thing. Now I know 
So he intended it to be this way. How much character, how much strength, how much will. If he was to be one of the fathers of the faithful, then he had to have the right character. Now Jacob passed this, didn't he? He made it. It was hard on him, but he made it. Even with a out-of-joint hip, he made it. Now, had he failed this, God already had made the promises to him. Had he failed it, what would have happened next? He would have had to have had more tests and more trials and more troubles until he passed, right? Likewise with you and me. We have to pass the tests. Now, if we fail a test, what happens? We have more trouble, don't we? God says, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Why could he say that ahead of time? Because he knew that we, being human beings, would have weaknesses, we would have problems, we would sin, and that he would have to bring tribulation. And he would have to bring affliction upon us in order to humble us, to teach us what we need to learn, and to help us develop the right choices, the right character in our lives. We did not, we were not born with a great deal of wisdom and self-control, were we? We have to learn by the things we suffer, the trials we go through, the temptations we have. And when we give in, it just makes it all the harder the next time. So we're our own worst enemy, aren't we? Satan is not really our worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy, and he plays upon our human nature. Weren't Adam and Eve their own worst enemy? All he did was play on their nature. Well, he had to know with Jacob. So he put him at a great disadvantage, and still Jacob hung on. Now God will put us at disadvantage at times too. And we have to hang on. We can't give up. You know, we'll, we'll face trials in doing the job that we have right here to do, today and now. Will we give it up when things are rough? Or will we have the perseverance, the patience, the strength to hang on and do the job God gave us to do? So he called the place Peniel. I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. I made it. As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he limped on his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh to this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. So they honored that, and I suspect, and it is the historical record, that Jacob limped the rest of his life, perhaps as a reminder to his sons and to Israel who would come along, perhaps as a reminder to himself of the covenant and the blessing that he received and of the struggle he went through. So he bore, I guess not a scar in this case, but a bad place and a bad limp probably for the rest of his life. 
as a reminder. And we have battle scars, don't we? We have things that we can remember where we were tempted, where we, were, where we sinned, where we made mistakes, where we didn't use enough wisdom and wound up in a pickle as a result of it, either financially or in some other form, because we didn't have the wisdom we needed. So we bear in our financial, our sexual, our emotional, our every part of life, scars of mistakes we have made. Marriage mistakes, child-rearing mistakes. Those scars never go away, do they? We live with the product of them. It's sometimes a distress upon us. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld Esau came. So he'd just gone through this tremendous trial where he had hung on and asked for a blessing. And he did ask in his prayer before this ever happened that God would bless him and remember the promises he'd made to him. But before those would be given, he had to be tested some first. We have read many, many scriptures showing the blessings that God has promised us here in the end. But all the way through all of those prophecies, it says we have to pass the trials, the troubles, and the tribulations that come because all those blessings are contingent upon our diligent obedience to God. That is the message in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 6 as well, specifically to the end-time church that must be built. As diligently obey and these things will happen. It can't be any more pointed than that. God had to know that this man was going to be loyal and faithful and true and prevail with God. Now we are in a test. Will we prevail with God? We've been chosen as Jacob was. We've been given God's spirit. We've been converted as Jacob was. The blessings have not yet come in the way the scriptures seem to indicate they will come. Promises have been made. We have entered into a covenant with it. Now the only question is, will we prevail with God? Is our heart set? Is our mind set in the course of action that we will take? Are we truly convicted of the knowledge and the way and the job that God has given us to do. Jacob lifted his eyes. He just received a blessing from Christ directly. He just spent the night with him. He prevailed. He was blessed. Woke up the next morning and trouble came. <laughs> it just, you can't get away from it. It doesn't matter how close you are to God in that sense, there still will be trouble. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came and with him 400 men. And he divided the children to Leah and to Rachel and to the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost. He made a decision here as to who was the most important to preserve. I don't know whether this made those people, probably didn't endear them to him in that sense, but he chose the favorites. He still may not have had total wisdom 
even though he was converted, even though he had been prevailing with God to this point. I'm not sure that this was exactly the right way to go about this. It certainly didn't make for domestic peace. He put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph at the back. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he called him Lord. He said, I'm your servant. And then he bowed seven times as Esau came up. (laughs) He must have been shocked. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That wasn't what he expected at all. Brothers can grow up together and they can really love each other, but can they live together and get along? It's another question entirely. And if they live separate lives and stay apart, it can be joyous to see each other in spite of all the problems. But if they're together much, then those problems come out again. Again, it's kind of like Thanksgiving in America. When everybody comes in the front door to mom and dad's house, everybody's happy to see each other and They may even cry and they give each other hugs and kisses and it's good to see you again and all that stuff. And it's another hour or two before they really begin to fight. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? Last time I saw you, you're a single man. Who are all these people? And he said, The children which God has graciously given your servant. Still calling him his Lord. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, they bowed themselves, and Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves, and after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What mean you by all this herd which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in your sight, or in the sight of my Lord. Why did you send all these animals and drivers out here? Jacob said, No, I pray you, Oh, no, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that you have to yourself. He was being very magnanimous here. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray you, if now I have found grace in your sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Boy, he says, seeing you is almost like seeing God. He really kept buttering him up, didn't he? Take, I pray you, my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously and because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go and I will go before you. Let's travel together, Esau said. And Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender, the flocks and herds with young are with me, and if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray you, pass over before his servant and I will lead on slowly or softly according as the cattle that goes before me and the little children be able to endure until I come to my Lord the seer. He had all his women and kids and flocks and herds, and Esau was there apparently with just 400 fighting men. He didn't want to travel together with him. Good to see you. Let's cry and kiss, but I'm not so sure I want to be with you and 400 fighting men. It's kind of the reading between the lines here. 
And Esau said, let me now leave with you some of the folk that are with me. Let me leave some of the fighting men, maybe as guards. And he said, what needs it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob saying, I'm my own man. I guess I can take care of myself. And, but I think a lot of it was fear as well. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him in a house and made booths for his cattle. And therefore, the name of the place is called Booths or Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of the field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar, and he called it El El Ohi Israel, or that is, God, the God of Israel. So he came back to his own land and says, this place is God, the God of Israel. Shows he was thinking of God. I think I'll try to cover chapter 34. It's, it's one story. Uh, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bore to Jacob. Remember the story back there when it said all of the sons that were born? The only girl that was born that was mentioned was Dinah. I would think, mathematically, that there had to be probably a lot of daughters born, but it was through the sons that the seed would come. And only one daughter was named Dinah. Why? Well, I think we're about to see that here in chapter 34. Uh, she became important to the story of Israel and to the future. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, they'd come into this country, and it was still inhabited by Gentile peoples. Uh, we could say today, unconverted peoples. But she went out to see her girlfriend's of these peoples, or to become acquainted, to become, to make friends out of them, I guess. She went out to see the daughters of the land. Is that a good thing to do? And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. He raped her, is what he did. Now, you see, there's a problem in going out and making girlfriends of the girls. They're not boys, so what should be the harm in that? Well, going out and making friends with the girls exposes you to the boys. Is one of the problems with that. And when the boys saw Dinah, and she was pretty, and Shechem liked her, he took her. defiled her. And his soul clave to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spoke kindly to the damsel. He was, at that point, trying to woo her. <laughs> he took her first and then tried to get her to love him. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace till they were come. He just kept quiet till the sons came in. He wanted to talk this family crisis over with them. They just moved into the land. Daughter went out, decided she'd become friends with the women of the land, and got herself in trouble. Can we begin to see a little more clearly, perhaps, why it is God does not want us to make friends with the world? It leads to problems. 
<clears throat> we can have our human reasonings as to why we're lonely or they, they, they're a lot of fun or whatever. But God says, don't do it. Here we see a real good example of why. Now, God devotes a whole chapter to this story in the Bible. Here again, the Bible, if everything was recorded that happened to all these men, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all the stories. It was even said of Christ that all the things he had done while he was here on the earth were recorded. There wouldn't be enough books to write it all in. So this is precious space. Why do you know, do you set aside a whole chapter for the story of Dinah? Well, let's see what the implications were. Uh, he held his peace, verse 6, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to commune with him. So Shechem's dad said, oh boy, now we got a problem. we got these people just moved in. Uh, there's problems between the kids. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. So even though Jacob hadn't said it, somebody went out and told them, and they came running in. They came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. A bunch of angry brothers. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. Well, this thing happened. It doesn't say uh, necessarily that he raped her. I think that that it seemed to be the case. Maybe it wasn't. It doesn't say over what period of time she communed with the daughters of the land, or the women. Maybe this happened over a period of days or weeks or months, and maybe she came to know him. And even if he seduced her, even if she found favor with him and he seduced her, it still was something that should not ought to have been done in Israel. So whether it was seduction and fornication or whether it was rape, I guess really is neither here nor there. Point is, it shouldn't have happened and it created problems. Sometimes when we're feeling hormonal drives and desires, wisdom and control go out the window. And then trouble comes. So he said, he wants to marry her. I pray you give her him to wife. And make you marriages with us, and give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to you. Well now, the laws of Israel later, through Moses, would be that if there was fornication, the two would get married. That was the rule. That was the way it was done. Otherwise, stoned to death. But there was an additional problem here, an additional complication. This was not all within Israel. It contained a Gentile people, the story did. So that made it even further complicated. I mean, it's one thing if two Israelites made a mistake, then they would marry. 
But you had an additional rule here. You don't marry outside the church. So when it happened outside, it made it even worse because you're not supposed to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever, be it a physical Gentile then or a spiritual Gentile today. There are reasons God has these rules. They complicate life. It's bad enough when there's fornication within the church and people need to get married or shotgun wedding, if you will, or, you know, whatever the parameters. But then when it's somebody outside that doesn't agree, it's going to cause complications with how do you raise the kids? Everything becomes more complicated. Now Shechem thought, well, let's just let them go ahead and get married. That'll settle down these brothers and solve the problem. Make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to you. And you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you and all be happy, happy. Dwell and trade you therein and get you possessions therein. So he's offering him the daughters of the land and he's offering them dollars. Daughters and dollars. Things haven't changed much, have they? And Shechem said to her father and to her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes and what you shall say to me I will give. I'll pay any price for this girl. Let us get married. And he's, the underlying motive is also don't kill us. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as you shall say to me. But give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister, they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were reproach to us. Now, these guys maybe had talked about it on the way in from the field, and they'd hatched a plan. They wanted to carry it out. And they may have even anticipated, well, they'll probably want to let Dinah and Shechem get married, and if they bring that up, we have plan A to take care of this. So, but in this will we consent to you. If you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then will we give our daughters to you, and you will take our, your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken to us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. If you, this really means to you, then you've got to get converted. Have we ever heard that before? Well, he's so cute, I'm going to convert him. Or, she's so cute, I'm going to convert her. So we've had people who, for the sake of a mate, and this has happened over and over and over again in the last, well, during Worldwide, where we have set our hand to convert someone that we liked. I have never, ever yet seen it happen. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John 6:44 can't happen. You can't convert someone. Now, if they, and circumcision came to denote uh, spiritual circumcision, to become converted in the New Testament. If you'll become, become converted, I'll marry you. So we have had dunkings where a girl or a boy thought that they had converted their dream 
man or woman. And they would even go so far as to be baptized. But was it genuine? Was it real? If God did the converting, maybe so. But if you did the converting, not a chance. They'll agree to anything to get what they want sometimes. It's just the way it is. I think there's a lot that we can learn from this story. We'll not hearken and be circumcised. If you're not going to get converted, we're out of here. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem. Hamor's son and the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter uh, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. So Shechem was a better man than his father and all of his house. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city. So they had to take this back. Let's talk it over with everybody back home and see if they're willing to be circumcised under these circumstances. Now, what good would it do them? All this would do would be preserve Shechem and Hamor and bring a marriage. But the demand had been that all your men be circumcised. All your men and boys be circumcised. And that's something you kind of have to talk people into. It's not something they just automatically say, I, th I think that's a good idea, let's do that. These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade therein, for the land, behold, it is large enough for them. So they make their argument. There's plenty of room here. We have space for them. And, and they're peaceable. They're nice guys. So maybe we ought to have them as part of our community. And let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent to us or to dwell with us, to be of one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. And then they add to the argument, Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. Let's be circumcised, and then we can get their daughters and dollars. That was the reasoning they used on them. You'll get the girls you want, and you'll get wealth out of them. It's the only appeal they could make, really. Uh, and it worked. And to Hamor and to Shechem his son hearkened to all that went out of the gate of his city, and every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. So they circumcised them all. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore. Now apparently after circumcision of an adult or a boy, uh, the soreness reaches its highest apex on the third day. I mean, there would be pain immediately, of course, but uh, apparently infection and so on, or not, maybe not infection, but the soreness of the wound would get at its worst. It's like some days, you know, when you exercise a lot and you get a whole lot of, uh, oh, I can't even say the word, uh, into your system anyway. What? Lactic acid, that's what I was trying to say and couldn't. Uh, into your system, sometimes the first day isn't the sorest day. It's two or three days later that you can't get out of bed. So I guess it's the same way with circumcision of an older boy or man. So anyway, they waited until they were at their feeblest, their sorest, their inability to get around. 
came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. This was their plan from the beginning. Let's get them circumcised, let's get them good and sore, and we can go in there and kill them all. They slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sisters. So two went in, killed all the men, and then the rest apparently came in and took all the spoil of the city. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. You've created a great stink here. I think it's interesting the way he put that. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. So he saw the possible ramifications of this. That he had, they had betrayed, even though there had been a great sin against the family, they had done a great deceit. <laughs> you know, sometimes the sins and errors of the fathers go down to the third and fourth generation. Jacob had done a lot of deceitful things. And now his sons, especially Simeon and Levi, had a mean streak and a deceitful nature there and uh, took care of this themselves. Jacob realized, hey, this, you know, we could bring down all the Gentile nations on us and we could all be destroyed. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? They figured, in this case, the end justified, or the means justified the end. They'd done this great thing and were justified in doing what we did. And in one sense, maybe that's true. They had defiled Israel, they had defiled the house of Jacob, and in those days, they took vengeance to themselves. God tells us vengeance is his. Let him take care of the problems. He can make the judgments and apply the right uh, penalty. They took it into their hands, and it wasn't just Hamor, it wasn't just Shechem, but it's everybody. All the males died and the rest, wives, daughters, little girls, taken captive and then used as those men saw fit. They became slaves. Well, that's the end of that story. There's no editorial comment from God as to whether he agreed or disagreed. Jacob was afraid. And uh, they felt justified. So we'll just leave it at that until we get to chapter 35 another time.